This is Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm excited to be in the Big Duck offices. Oh my gosh, we're finally here. I have a beautiful view of Manhattan Bridge and Sarah Durham, the CEO of Big Duck is here with me. How's it going, Sarah? Great, thanks for having me, George. How are you? Well, you're on the podcast again. I'm excited that you've actually accepted the invitation and you are doing incredible work here at Big Duck, but can you explain uh, that you are not about just the obviously animal rescue of ducks, but <laughs> the true work of branding. Can you tell us a bit about Big Duck? Yeah, I wish we were about animal, animal rescue. That sounds like fun. Um, we're a communications firm that helps organizations, nonprofit organizations, use communications to advance their mission. And we do that by helping them develop strong brands, strong campaigns, and strong communications teams. Brilliant. And give us a, give us a sense of uh, why you know Big Duck was created. Well, I started Big Duck in 1994, and at that time, uh, communications as a discipline in the nonprofit sector was virtually non-existent. And nonprofits really weren't thinking about how they communicate, about their, their voices, their identities. Uh, and so that, plus the sort of rise of digital and the dramatic changes we've seen in the communications world, made me feel like there was this great opportunity to be almost like a pit crew for nonprofits, helping them communicate more effectively so they could, they could do their best work. I think it's, first off, just to, to say to our listeners, anyone who can start a thing, 1994, and keep it going for, you know, like 20 years, uh, I feel like we're an old organization at eight years, but I mean, hats, hats off. It is such a hard task. Uh, and you know, this isn't the topic we're going to talk about, but do you look back and, and say, uh, I had no clue what I was getting into uh, uh, in this roller coaster ride? How has it shifted in terms of the, the tactics and strategies you were talking about in the 90s to, to now? Yes and yes. And I mean, I think one of the things that's so exciting about what we both get to do is that communications as a sector and as an industry just keeps changing. You know, there's always a game-changing piece of technology coming out, you know, a rule-breaking new person changing the rules of what conventions are. And so I couldn't have predicted at all where we would be this many years later. But the, the fact that the landscape keeps changing so much is why I think it's so challenging to communicate effectively and what, for me, makes this really fun because because um, it's like a new industry every few years. So let's play a quick time machine game. It's 1998. You don't have to be perfectly specific with the top of the charts. But it's 1998. <laughs> I walk into you and say, hey, I'm a not-for-profit trying to create my communication strategy. What do you feel like could be the same slides in that deck from, you know, 98 that you'd be handing out in 20? Well, I think in 1998, the communications person who'd walk in would probably be kind of like a media relations person. They'd be, their orientation would be around journalism and media. 
And what probably they'd have in common with the comms person of today or the slides that would be common would, would be maybe around messaging or talking points and being trying to be very clear what your organization is trying to communicate. But in 1998, most nonprofits didn't have a website. <laughs> and there was no Facebook. And, um, and so the, the, that communicator would have been communicating in a kind of megaphone-like broadcast, very traditional and very one-dimensional, not one-dimensional, one-sided kind of way, most likely. So, um, so the tactics they'd be using would be totally different and, and much uh, less fast-paced and much more media, media, traditional media relations driven. I, you know, I created Whole Whale under the same premise that I was realizing we were in an age at which technology and data had basically changed the industry so quickly as a never before seen in the industry while we do have in you know in the nonprofit sector folks that have been entrenched in the work that they've been doing and if you don't pick your head up if you're not bringing in experts you realize that you haven't just been passed but leapfrogged getting to that point what are some of the exciting trends you've seen in branding and storytelling this year well, you know, there's three areas of our of our work: branding, campaigns, and teams. And where we're seeing the most change is in the in, in, a bit on the branding side, but actually deeply on the team side. So let's touch on both of those. On the branding side, the thing that's been most interesting to me over the past couple of years is is uh, first, how many nonprofits are actually embracing the notion that they have a brand and understanding that that brand is much bigger than just their logo. Um, in the 90s, that communications person would have said, branding, that's the B word, you know, don't use that word, we're a nonprofit, we don't have a brand, you know. These days, branding is a, is a kind of relatively frequently used and understood concept and nonprofits understand it is a strategic tool and not just your logo. That's a shift, um, but the more recent shift or trend that I'm surprised by is not that, it's the, how many organizations are changing their names. And, um, and I say that because in the 20, almost, you know, almost 25 years I've been doing this work, up until about three years ago, I could probably count on one hand the number of organizations that were interested in changing their name as they went through a significant shift in their brand. In the past two or three years, I've seen many, many organizations change their name, not just our clients, but in the world. And I think there is a, a moment of reinvention and, and sort of a perspective about reinvention that a name change embodies. And so that's kind of an interesting trend. Um, on the team side, I think there is a kind of a comparable um, coming of age that nonprofits are having about the importance of communications as a strategic function, not just as a kind of tactical, these are the people who make the stuff function. And so there's a lot of stuff emerging around that, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah, I think the changing of the name is, it's, it's so painful when you realize in earnestness that your name was created in a time in which the internet didn't exist time in which the strategies you employed or programmatic shifts have happened. Uh, you know, dissecting that a bit more, you know, for folks that are listening, if this is on, you know, on, on the conversation, at what point, you know, I think of it as, is it a superficial, if only our name were different, we'd be so much cooler? Uh, is it because triggered by a programmatic shift, a technical shift, 
what are the, the drivers behind the, the dominoes falling when it comes to having to change your name? Well, first of all, you know, the nonprofit sector has been growing really rapidly in the last 50 or 60 years. So if we got in our time machine again and we went back to like the 70s or the 60s or the 50s, the nonprofit sector would be smaller and those organizations would be younger, which would mean that kind of their, their names, their brand identities, all that kind of stuff didn't have so much history or baggage. Um, you know, in 2018, if you take an organization that's been around 130 years, there it's quite possible that name doesn't hold up anymore. Um, one of the interesting examples we saw a few years ago was the United Negro College Fund changing their name to UNCF, their acronym, or the American Association for Retired People becoming AARP and kind of doing away from it. So we've seen some organizations where as the external world changes, they have a lot of equity in their name and they don't want to throw that equity out, but they need to they need to stay current and move to a place that is, you know, is more appropriate for how we communicate today. So that's one piece of it, but I think there's also a piece of it about organizations getting gutsier at looking at the future. So so the your example of like we'd be cooler if we had a cooler name. I wouldn't say it's quite that simple. I think most organizations are um, fearful of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in a name change. But more and more, we see executive directors and leaders who are coming into the nonprofit sector who are envisioning increasingly big and bold futures, and they're not afraid to you know, bet the farm on it. And sometimes that does mean making a radical shift. How do you measure brand equity? which is a loaded term, but it has value. We're building, quote unquote, we build our brand. We create brand familiarity and recognition in the field. How do you measure that when you're also saying, well, let's just go ahead and change it up. And obviously if you pull out an ARP, you're like, great job. Cause that just, you know, is a household name now. However, I'm sure there is as many stories of, and then you never heard of them. Right. That's absolutely right. And I mean, I have, uh, we, we did a study a few years ago called the rebrand effect, where we did some research into organizations that had rebranded and what they changed and what the outcomes were. And one of the things I've heard a lot is kind of fearfulness about if we change the name or if we change other elements, are we going to alienate our base of supporters? And, and I actually heard in, in my entire career, I've heard one horror story about that. Somebody who came to a workshop I gave who talked about changing the organization's name and all the donors stopped supporting them and it was you know, kind of a travesty. Um, but what we found in the rebrand effect and what we've seen in our work generally is that when you navigate a name change by bringing your core base of support along, they generally go along and it does, it does work. But your question is really about measuring. How do you know if there's a there there? And I would, I would guess that probably 95% of organizations who are fearful of changing their name because they think they have equity in it are going on gut. There are very few um, ways to measure it, and those ways are generally expensive. Um, the way you would do it is you do, you do stakeholder research. And you know, we've had a number of, of, of our clients and other organizations uh, who spend either annually or episodically $25,000, $50,000, $100,000 on market research to help them determine, have people heard of them? What do they associate with them? You know, what do they perceive about the organization? Um, we created a tool 
about three or four years ago called the Brand Raising Benchmark, which is a low-cost way that a national organization can measure brand awareness. Um, but even if you've got equity in a name or awareness, you can still change the name or change things and keep that. It's about how you bring people on the journey. So having equity in the name doesn't necessarily mean you know, it can't change. It just means you have to be extra careful. I want to push a little bit more into measurement and our ability to measure our communications, who they reached, who commented on it, how it's you know resonating, has literally been uh, turned upside down since 1994. We'll yeah. say randomly choosing a year. <laughs> how has that impacted somebody who's sitting in that communications role today? I mean, you know. In your business, I imagine you see this all the time. You know, in 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 our work, uh, our day-to-day contact is a person who's trying desperately to keep up with how quickly things are changing and to look at what is a vast quantity of potential data, engagement metrics, analytics, click-throughs, open rates, all that kind of stuff. There is so much information that somebody can use. Uh, and can dig into, but um, it's changing so quickly and keeping abreast of what you should be paying attention to and not just drowning in the data is a, is a constant tension point. So I don't know, I think a lot of people really struggle with that and my, my sense of the, uh, the staff people that we talk to is that um, they're either ignoring all the data or they're immersed in so much of it that they've lost perspective. Yeah, the wealth of information driving the poverty of attention will only continue to increase, I think, uh, as time goes on. You know, you really feel for the people in those seats. So, all right, so I was sitting in a meeting the other day with uh, uh, a potential client, shan't be named. <laughs> I'm curious how you would respond to the following. They're an organization, they just sort of uh, went through a merger, mm-hmm. right? So, like, you know, there's a new name, and then they chose one of the social media platforms to come in, and their board is now saying, hey, uh, why, why is it that we're a smaller, less influential organization based on the metrics we see on social media to our competitor, which has got these big numbers, and we have small numbers? We aren't doing well, quote-unquote, on digital. Go do more. Go chase down these vanity metrics. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, maybe the key in what you just said, and maybe this is also you tipping the cards on your perspective, is the term vanity metrics, right? I mean, I, I, uh, if, if we go back to our 1998 communicator, um, he or she would have been concerned with impressions. Like in the, in the you know, if you, get a, if you get a story about your nonprofit in the New York Times, you'd, the metric you'd talk about was impressions, how many people read the New York Times. Measuring things like you know, likes or follows or things like that is the same kind of thing. It's just, a, it's just a number. It's not true engagement. One of the things that I think is particularly challenging about digital is how do you convert digital behaviors into real-world actions? Just because I like a post, does that mean I'm actually going to sign up, pledge, make a gift, etc.? So those conversion metrics and how we link them and how we kind of track where somebody is in that engagement journey that they go on feels to me like it's the key. But, but oftentimes, if we're really focused on building a big social or digital platform, we're really just looking at one slice of the journey. We're not looking at that person's whole interaction with the organization. 
I definitely loaded my question a little bit with vanity metrics, which we'll come back to. So put a pin, <laughs> in, hit a pin in that. But help me out a bit more. I'm sitting here in the seat. My board is saying, hey, why aren't we doing well on digital? Our numbers are literally half of that of a rival organization. What's going on here? So how do you, how do you unpack that? You've been brought in for communications, for brand. Our brand is small. We are not known. How do you approach the we're not big enough, quote unquote, on social? I mean, again, I think the question is, what's the social strategy, right? Like, like who are we trying to reach on social? What actions do we want them to take? Are, is the there there? If, if the goal or the mandate of digital is to get people to, um, to become donors, you know, how does social fit into that? Where is the place we're using them? Is it to cultivate them and prime them to make a gift? Is it to keep them engaged after they've made a gift? If the goal is to get them to you know, take an advocacy action, sign a pledge or a petition or, or uh, advocate on behalf of something, where does social come in for that? Is it to engage them in conversation? So I think you really, you know, to, to me it's not, um, you know, I would rather see an organization have a small, dynamic, super engaged digital presence of people who actually do things than a cavalcade of followers and, and likers who are slacktivists, who are just clicking buttons but never take any other actions. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's, that's where I would go. I'd push on that. <laughs> but what did you say? I, I'm curious how you responded. Oh, I ran out. I ran out of the room. Uh, no, uh, my, you know, my response was, I think that there is a sort of minimum viable threshold of confidence and social proofing you need on these platforms mm. to say, hey, are we a legitimate organization? When I hold up a book, I'm going to judge it by its cover. Whoever says don't do it doesn't matter. They're saying don't do it because it's what we do. How does it look on the face of things? Are we meeting a minimum baseline and if you are okay now if I'm playing in a pool and I expect to be an ARP but it's clear I only have a hundred followers a hundred likes on X you're like well, what are you what are you doing here your next point well taken are we going a mile wide are we going a mile deep do right. I want uh, to stigmatize a behavior like drunk driving or do I want to get you to know about my rare disease illness in this vertical and by the way my total addressable market is a fraction of that Okay, what are we then looking for? So, you know, level setting that is uh, is certain certainly a big part of the game. I want to wander around thoughts that come up as I sit across the room from you, and I look inside of your office. I walked around. This place is gorgeous, by the way. Um, Thank the you. the rumbling in the background train is like lulling me into the, yeah, the into uh, it. I love it. The Q train or something going off the, over the Manhattan Bridge. So this, I, I'm just being wildly selfish right now. But also anybody on here thinking about creating their own company and as they're running their own company or their own nonprofit, how do you deal with the shiny new thing effect? Shiny object syndrome. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's been interesting. The last couple of years I've found it to, maybe this is more true in your business than in ours. I haven't had to deal with it as frequently in the last couple of years as we used to. Certainly when Facebook happened when Twitter happened you know any new 
technology, any any kind of breakthrough new thing, um, there has there has been a sort of uh, usually it starts with a staff person or a board member saying like we need to be on the Twitter or we need a Snapchat or whatever it is, and then everybody sort of starts doing it and backs into the strategy. Um, you know. Recently, I would say one of the things that I've seen that happening with a bit is marketing automation. A lot of organizations are really interested in marketing or, uh, automation, but the capacity that it requires to do it well is really challenging. Um, I mean, I guess my mantra is is you know uh, less less is often more and run before you walk. You know, with shiny objects. I mean, I, I would rather see an organization. Um, not spread limited resources across many, many things. I'd rather them do one or two things really well. Um, so that depends. I mean, there's some organizations where it doesn't work. I, I like what you said earlier about it's important to have a kind of a minimum threshold of public credibility. And it might be that in your work, you can't get away with like not being on Twitter, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, but, if you can, if you can sort of say, like, these are the things we're going to do and we're going to do them well, that's a better way to go. But I'm a big believer, you know, that when a nonprofit hires an expert like you or like my firm, um, that part of what you're hiring us for is to push back and to challenge and to say no. And, um, and, and uh, if we've shared a dissenting opinion and, and a client has understood it, uh, we kind of, you know, work it out, and I think that's where the best work happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm not the best with shiny objects, mainly because I want to play with all of them. See, I, I want to play with all of them, too. If there's a pony there, yeah. if my poor team knew how many ideas that uh, I wrote down on the paper and said, if I'm still excited about this in two weeks, then we'll do it. Uh, well, that's a good way to that's a good way to manage shiny object syndrome is to to give yourself uh, either like a cooling down period or what what I often try to do is like give myself a, a sandbox period like I get to play with the shiny object but only for one month or only for two months and then at the end of that it's got to go through like a thoughtful thoughtful you know pressure testing yeah I it's so easy to get lulled into doing what you've done because it's what you do and part of me is like that that balance and you know you hear it in the nonprofit sector of like we want you to experiment don't take risks <laughs> <laughs> like what uh, are you know going back to marketing automation can you unpack that what is marketing automation well uh, I don't know if I'll give you the best textbook definition but marketing automation is often setting up ways of communicating, usually digitally and, and often heavily reliant on email, that allow you to segment or create if this then that kinds of drips or journeys. So, um, so if, you come to, uh, if you come to the Big Duck website, for instance, and you tell us that you're a communications person, uh, when you fill out a form, you're going to get communications for communications people, that's segmentation. But you're also, based on your behaviors, what pages on our website you click on or things you engage with, gonna get some special things. You know, visiting a certain, uh, you know, taking, taking a webinar, for instance, might trigger a marketing automated drip or journey that gives you the options to do other things. Um, so it allows you to personalize how somebody interacts with your organization or your services in digital ways. Um, and in my experience of it, both using it for Big Duck, but also trying to help some of our clients navigate it, 
it just it's sophisticated and complicated and you need great people who get it and who can really stay on it and if you've got that it's really awesome and powerful but um, but it can be pretty overwhelming for people I'd say the time invested nearly always pays back because you've effectively automated a lot of tasks that you end up doing and can do things even such as, you know, think about in your database right now, if part of your day was going through and sending an email to everyone whose birthday it is, being like, hey, Jessica, happy birthday. We still exist as a company, and that was your job. You're like, or you could spend one day, write the code, get it done. Yeah. Or giving anniversary, you gave this time last year. Would you want to go through and do that? Right. And so you get these opportunities and, and weighing the pros and cons of how much upfront time do I have to invest to get long-term results uh, is, uh, is part of the game. Okay, one more selfish question because, frankly, it's the whole web podcast <laughs> and we can do it. Uh, you know, we had Seth Godin on not too long ago, and he is a prolific writer and obviously marketer, but also father. And he has done so much while also focusing on being a parent. Uh, I happen to know you are also a parent. Uh, you don't have to divulge very much there, but you're also uh, an entrepreneur who started an awesome company that has lasted. Can you talk to me about that balance in your life of feeling like maybe you needed to work every single hour, but then you also had a family? Yeah, I mean, I think we live in a world, maybe in an economy, and certainly in a sector where uh, there's never enough time. And when you have other priorities, and it might be it might be a family, it might be a hobby. It, I mean, it could be many, many things. Um, I think you have to you have to develop some practices to create. I hate to use the word balance because balance implies there is a kind of an optimal place, but a way to consciously manage the ebb and flow. You know, some days you uh, you emphasize or you prioritize one aspect of your life. Other days it's another. Some days you feel like you fail on all fronts. Um, for me, I think the uh, the balancing being a business owner and an entrepreneur. Um, with having a family, but also having a lot of personal passions. I'm, uh, I'm very actively involved on a nonprofit board. I do a lot of volunteer work. Um, I used to teach. It's really, first and foremost, about being clear what my personal priorities are and aggressive time management, and in, in many ways, partitioning. You know, you have to be able to say, and it's a privilege to be in a world where I can say this, to be able to say, okay, I'm going home now, or okay, I'm done now. Um, and you have to be able to uh, be okay with the sacrifices you make. You know, Maybe you don't see your friends as much. Maybe you don't get to do that other thing. So um, I think uh, not just work, but life in many ways is, is a practice, like yoga is a practice. We're constantly trying to you know, refine our technique and get better at it, and it's just you know, iterative. <laughs> I will say what you've done is heroically difficult from my perspective, but uh, <laughs> clearly. The well, you are. also have a younger child. My, I have, uh, I actually have identical twins, um, and they're teenagers now. And uh, and I think when you have little children, that's particularly challenging because they go to sleep early and they don't understand why you're not physically there, and it's kind of different. You know, but the, my kids are at an age where they don't really want me around all that much. <laughs> exactly. They, they figured it out. All righty, we're going to move into the 
lightning round where I'll ask you questions and you will respond with your initial reactions. Are you ready for lightning round? Always. <laughs> I'm permanently ready for lightning round. <laughs> Forever. Remember the life life is yes. lightning round, yeah. <laughs> All right, if you could jump into a hot tub time machine and go back to 1994 when you were starting this company, what advice would you give yourself? Um, just do it, go for it. You know, I think too many people, when they're trying to start something new, hold back and let their fear of the unknown or their lack of expertise uh, become disabling. I think you have to be candid about what you do and don't don't know how to do. Um, so don't bullshit, but you know, be authentic and go for it. Can you talk to me about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things today? Um, yeah, I have become increasingly a fan and an advocate for being as authentic and honest with people and as direct with people as I can be. And that comes out of many mistakes I've made where in the interest of avoiding confrontation or, or challenge, I didn't open up a difficult conversation. So for instance, as a, as a boss, um, if I, years ago, I've had, I had a few situations where I had employees where the, what the business needed from them and where they were going were kind of diverging, and I didn't know how to open up those conversations, and so I didn't. And, uh, and in a few cases, um, situations happened where either I had to let them go or maybe they left unexpectedly, and those situations were harder and more painful for everybody because there was no preamble. So, uh, so now I really believe in kind of helping people understand where I stand with them, trying to understand where, where you know, they stand with me, like being really candid about that stuff. And I Hashtag find radical candor. Radical candor, yeah. Hashtag yeah. rudeness empathy. Yeah, which, which honestly, in a, you know, is, is challenging for a lot of people. And, and again, I, I, I say that being very aware that I hold a lot of power and privilege and not everybody does. So I, I, I think you have, to, you have to be cautious in the use of radical candor that it, it, it's, it's a powerful weapon that not everybody has access to. What is a tech dragon you have to slay in the coming year? <clears throat> tech dragon I have to slay in the coming year. You know, I don't know. I honestly like, I, I increasingly um, believe it's your job, George, to slay, to slay the tech dragon. Um, I mean, seriously, I think there's so much technology changing so quickly. You know, 10 years ago, you had, and, and, and maybe this is a critique of the agency world, but um, 10 years ago, you had agencies that did everything. And now it's not that easy to do it all and keep up with it. And um, we're not trying to do that at Big Duck. We try to focus on what we're doing. We don't stay on top of every, every new technology. But we do have partners who try to. So, uh, so I don't think I have a new, a new technology I want to slay. But I want to know what you're going to slay. What fun tool do you, uh, do you think you've started using as really making uh, an improvement to your organization? You know... It's not, I don't know, it's like crazy fun, but I love Slack. <laughs> I think it makes a big difference, um, and it can be fun. I love doing stuff in Slack, like, uh, you know, having a water cooler. We have a parent's room in Slack, so that stuff's fun. <laughs> what is something that you're particularly excited for in the coming year? 
Um, well, I just finished the first draft of a new book, and I'm hoping to have that book out there in the beginning of 2019. And there's a lot of new stuff we're going to do around that, and I'm very excited about that. Oh, something tells me we'll be having you back on to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be the Sarah and George talk about stuff that they're doing. Uh, by the way, time of day is all I'll say about a tech dragon I'm trying to slay. Time of day. Yes. Okay. Alrighty. Uh, if you had a magic wand that you could wave across the nonprofit industry, what would it do? Um, if I had a magic wand I could wave across the nonprofit industry, it would um, raise the consciousness among board members and C-suite nonprofit leaders about the power of communications to be a strategic tool and not just a tactical resource. There are tens of thousands of college graduates wandering out every single year, currently right now, looking for jobs in the social impact sector. What yeah. is your advice to those folks? My advice to anybody looking for a job, and particularly recent college grads, is always just go get a job. <laughs> um, you know, many generationally, uh, when I when I was growing up, um, you know, you went to college, you didn't have to go to grad school. I think a lot of a lot of young people today feel they must go to grad school. They are trying to get degrees in nonprofit management. I, I appreciate those degrees. I've taught in nonprofit management programs, but I think getting real world experience is invaluable and particularly just going into a nonprofit, get an internship, get a job. Um, you just get your feet wet and start doing it because the minute you're in a real job, you start to see what are you good at, what do you love, what's really happening, and it helps you make better decisions just by opening up a door. Um, so don't wait for the perfect job. Don't, you know, sit at home, you know, waiting for the phone to ring. Just go do something even if it's not perfect. What is something you think that Big Duck should stop doing? We talk about that all the time. I think I, I love I love the ruthless pursuit of doing less, but doing you know doing what you do better. And we talk about that a lot. Um, what should we stop doing? Well, we basically stopped doing um, uh, digital fundraising, year end year end appeals, and that kind of work. And the reason we stopped doing it, we've we've done less and less of it over the past few years, is that there are so many people out there who do it so well and it's becoming increasingly a specialized space. So rather than expand our team to stay on top of it and keep doing it, we made a strategic decision to um, refer that business to people who do it better than we do. All righty, final, final question, bit of a softball. Sarah, how do people find you? How do people help you? <laughs> um, you can find Big Duck at bigduckNYC.com. Um, you'll find me there and anybody else, and you can email any of us at hello at bigduckNYC.com. Um, how can you help me? You could subscribe to, uh, if you like podcasts, the Smart Communications Podcast, which I host. You'll find that in iTunes or on Spotify. Again, it's the Smart Communications Podcast, and if you like it, drop me a note. Tell me uh, what you like. If you don't like it, drop me a note. Um, I'd welcome uh, any ideas and feedback uh, your audience has, because you're obviously fabulous podcast listeners. Thank you so much for the time today and sharing your wisdom. Thanks, George. You too.
This has been Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. Resources, as always, may be found at wholewhale.com slash podcast. Thanks for joining us.